reading from today is from Zephaniah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rebels with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. thank you that we get to worship you for your your whole character not just for your love and mercy but for your justice and for your intolerance of evil and we know that that intolerance means that we need something to remediate and atone for the sins and the evilness that we have and we thank you for Jesus that he is that redeemer for us, that when we were, we were sinful and could not enter the throne, Jesus covered us in his blood and clothed us in his righteousness. And now we have the joy and pleasure to come before his throne daily, hourly, and to talk to him and present a request to him and glorify him and worship him. And I pray that we would do that. I pray that we would spend time connecting with with you and in your word and in prayer every day because we are so grateful for the sacrifice that Christ did and made. And it's in your precious son's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Um, good morning, guys. My name's Derek. I'm one of the um, free pastors here, um, one of the lay elders. And uh, Every summer, we sort of um, change things up a little bit. We give Kevin some time off, and, and more on that in a second. But um, if you guys are interested in ever reading Scripture before a sermon, you can, but just know you have to pass a pronunciation test. Um, we're going to take you through the book of Numbers, see how you do. You score 80 or above, you're good to go. Um, Dan was like right on the line, but we serve a God of grace. Um, so here we are. Um, so before we get started, I want to go through um, three key announcements, um, and I don't know what order they're in, so I'm going to let David help guide me on that. Okay, we're going to start with the member meeting. Uh, July 15th, right after morning worship, um, we're staying in here, right? Uh, going to go right into the member meeting. We'll go over um, some highlights for the, the church's vision and the activity over the last uh, year since we had the last member meeting. Um, We'll get better at that, I promise. Um, and go over the member covenant, talk about what it looks like to, to be a covenant member of this local church. So if you have questions about that um, ahead of time, you can see me or Kevin or Brent or Brian for a limited time only. Um, next, fall community groups. If you are interested in leading a community group this fall, 
We're changing things up a bit. Um, we have, up until this point, kept things um, pretty tightly managed. We've said, okay, we're all going to go through the same material together as a church. We felt like that was important to build in some, some foundational DNA um, for what it looks like to, to be a part of this local body. Um, but this fall, we're going to open this up. We're, we're looking for as many interested um, teachers as possible um, to come in. We're going to have a curated list of options that, uh, for curriculum that you can look at, or you can run something by uh, one of the pastors, and, and we'd be happy to talk with you about that. But if you have questions about leading a community group this summer, um, whether as like the lead person who's in charge of organizing it or just assisting with that, come talk to me after the service, uh, and I can give you more details, um, which basically would just be my phone number so you can call me later. Um, and then today, very importantly, um, after church, we're going to take some time to uh, fill out some postcards um, for inmates in prisons around here. Virginia Compton, Virginia's back there with her hand up. She's going to be at a table in the back. She's got tons of cards, tons of pins. Um, you have no reason not to grab a card um, and write a note of encouragement um, to uh, one of the inmates. Um, this is uh, a new ministry we're starting up. We have um, started to build some relationships with uh, the prison community, and so we want to um, engage that for the Lord. So if you have any interest or desire, you have no excuse. Catch it up on the way, on the, on the, way out the door. Um, and that's it, I think. Um, so again, my name's Derek. Uh, Kevin normally would be up here doing this, so if you don't like it, come back next week. He's, nope, wait, August. Oh, you it is next week? Okay, I'm not here, so I don't really pay attention to who's preaching. Um, I'll be at the beach. It's what I meant. So it's, anyway, uh, right. So why am I here and not Kevin? That's a perfectly valid question uh, you might be asking yourself. Um, we as elders, Kevin included, have sort of established this rule that uh, Kevin will take a significant amount of time out of the pulpit every summer. Um, we do this for, for two reasons. Um, primarily, this is because we very much value Sabbath rest, right? The, the role of a, a paid full-time staff pastor has a lot of demands for uh, time placed on it. Um, Kevin has a family. Kevin has um, other interests outside of ministry. We want to give him time to sort of unplug, decompress, spend time with his family. But the Sabbath rest part is that he gets to sit back and take pleasure knowing that this is the church of Christ. This is not Kevin's church. Like He doesn't have to be um, constantly in the mix, constantly planning sermons that the work of the Lord will go out regardless of who's up here, um, more or less. Um, the second point, which I think is, is as important, is it gives him time to invest in his family. And, and if you have a family, um, that will always be your first and primary ministry. Um, and so we want to honor that in Kevin's life, and so we, um, we give him a break. So you'll get the chance to see a few different faces up here, um, Kevin included, if you want to come back next week, apparently. Um, it's not about performance, right? Kevin is a very gifted preacher, as many of you know. Um, it's just about that that cycle of rest, honoring God through um, giving up control, however, might, however slight that might be. Um, and then over the summers, what we do is we tend to go to some of the lesser known or, or less popular books of the Bible. Um, Adelaide, if you're new here, what we do is we go through books of the Bible at a time. We go verse by verse um, rather than, than topical. And um, we do that because we really believe what Paul writes in 2 Timothy. David, could you throw that up there for me? Um, he says that all 
Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the people of God may be equipped for every good work. That means that the entirety of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is good and fruitful for you to study. And so it just works out with our scheduling that we get to go through some of the smaller books uh, that we're doing, like today, Zephaniah. Um, So we'll look at the first six verses of Zephaniah this morning. Um, As we study through these verses together this morning, I want want to touch on a few things directly. First and foremost, I want to give you some background on the book. I'm guessing that not many of us um, can quote vast passages of Zephaniah by heart. Um, I, I had to do, I know I had to do a lot of study to be adequately prepared for this morning. I'm assuming that um, we're, outside of maybe sword drills, um, we're all in the same boat. Um, so I want to talk about how that fits not only into um, the idea of like fall redemption and restoration, but also in like just the timeline of the Old Testament. When was it written? What was the context? What's going on around it that sort of helps us understand the verses? Second, I want you to see that God expects his people to give him their undivided allegiance and to remain distinct from the world around them. God's people are set apart that they, and they ought to remain that way, right? God calls Israel out, we'll look at that in a second, and, and says, you're going to be my people and there's going to be certain ways that needs to look and they need to stay that way. Um, third, and I think this is probably the most important thing for us to keep in mind, there is still hope, even in the midst of judgment. God is faithful even when we're not, and we can hang our hope on that with confidence. So let's get started. Um, This book, uh, Zephaniah, is part of a section of the Old Testament referred to as the minor prophets. Now that's not to do with the value of the prophets, but just the size. Zephaniah is only three books, or three chapters in length. Um, Look at the introduction of Zephaniah in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedidiah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, writing in the days of Josiah. So what this tells us is that not only is is Zephaniah a prophet, but he's descended from one of the uh, few righteous kings in Judah's history, Hezekiah. Um. He also tells us here that Zephaniah is writing in the, um, the reign of King Josiah. So 60 years have passed since Hezekiah sat on the throne. 60 years. And they were a wicked 60 years. Not a single king um, from Hezekiah to Josiah tried to turn the people of Judah towards God. They did the opposite. They increased the idolatry and the debasement um, in the nation. So... This is, this is important because it offers us some insight into the tone of Josiah's, uh, Zephaniah's prophecy, I think, that, that it is so bleak, so stark. One of the primary themes of the book is this idea that there's going to be a day when God is going to judge his creation, not just humanity, but everything. The Bible refers to this as the day of the Lord, and we're going to learn more about that in the next few sermons. In fact, he starts talking about it, I think, as early as, as verse 7 of chapter 1. Um, but Zephaniah focuses on this more intently than any other prophet who, who has scripture in the Old Testament. Um, he talks about it time and again, verse after verse. And it starts off with this 
um, scathing rebuke of God's people in the first couple of chapters. Like, yes, there's some hope offered at the end, but this book is not likely to be quoted by Joy FM or like a sympathy card. Like, you're not getting a card, you open it up, and it says, I'm sorry you broke your leg, but don't worry about it because God's going to destroy everything. Get better, right? Like, that's not, that's not likely to happen anytime soon. So as far as uh, how this book fits into the timeline of the Old Testament, um, this was written about 640 years uh, before Jesus came to earth. Zephaniah himself is a contemporary of other prophets like Habakkuk and Jeremiah, and he's writing around the same time as these prophets, addressing the same things they're addressing, um, that wrath is coming because of disobedience. So remember your covenant with the Lord and repent. Over and over, these prophets are ignored. God's people had hardened their hearts and wanted nothing to do with God's call to repentance and obedience. And these prophets were not popular, to say the least. But God gave each of these prophets a similar message, and they dutifully, if sometimes reluctantly, conveyed God's message to his people. To put an even finer point on it in terms of of historical significance, Zephaniah is the last of what's called the pre-exilic prophets, meaning he is the last one to bring a warning of impending judgment rather than looking back at the judgment and saying, see, God did what he said he was going to do. The stakes are high for Judah at this point. Um, These calls for repentance and obedience, they're not idle threats. In fact, God had already executed a judgment he had warned Israel about. And now they're under the rule of Assyria, right? Israel is is Judah's sister kingdom. It's ten of the twelve tribes of Israel, of the nation of Israel, and, and Judah is the other two. Judah's literally watched God's warnings of judgment become a reality, and yet they persist in their disobedience. Perhaps that's why Zephaniah dispenses with the pleasantries and gets right to the point. Um, so it's, it's likely that this book was written early on in Josiah's reign. And it's not clear if this happened. Um, so Josiah was a reforming king. It's not clear if um, Zephaniah wrote this at the like, very beginning when everyone is still um, in like, free-falling disobedience, or if maybe this is at the beginning of the, the reforms that um, people are still stiff-necked, right? There's still, they're still some, even as they're turning, they still need that kick in the pants to like, hey, no, this is still, like, we're not out of the woods yet. Um, you can read a little bit about this history of Josiah's reforms in 2 Kings 22 and 23, and in there, there's this really interesting part where uh, Josiah sends people to the temple, sends them to the treasury, and they're, they're in there, like, taking account of the, the gold and silver, the, the valuables, and, and they're paying people for work that's being done. And somebody comes out, and they're like, hey, we found this book in there. Do you know what it is? Right? Like, the, the people of Judah had been so wicked in the previous 60 years that not only were they engaging in idolatry, but when they found the word of God, they didn't even know what to do with it. They had to find a faithful guy in the, in the community who could look at it and go, oh, this is not just some random book. This is Deuteronomy. This is God's law. We need to follow this. And Josiah immediately is like, do whatever this man says. We need to repent. And immediately, like, Josiah puts on sackcloth and ashes and um, begins to repent because he didn't even know that what they were doing was wrong until he found the law and somebody explained it to him. So let me take a moment to share a thought with you that's maybe not entirely on topic, though it's, it's probably related. Don't rely on your friends to know the Bible for you. Don't rely on me or Kevin or Brent 
or Brian, or your community groups, or your campus ministries, or your, your family, your grandmother, your grandfather who's a titan of the faith, don't rely on those people to be your repository for biblical information. There's no acceptable substitute for a personal study of the Word of God. None, right? Like, find these supplements, find these good teachers, find these good influences in your life, and thank God for them. But they should not become the primary vehicle through which you are learning the Scriptures. The Scriptures should be that primary vehicle. Opening up the Bible and asking yourself, what's in here? What does this say about God? What does this say about me? What does this say about where my hope should lie? What does this say about what my preferences ought to be? We sit under sound biblical teaching to support that, right? But how do you know if what you're being taught is in line with scriptures if you don't even know what they say yourself, right? We have to let the word of God dwell richly in us. More than that, we have to let the word of God be the defining influence in our lives, on our hearts, and on our minds. It has to be the case because you can't, like, don't fool yourself. Anytime you watch television, anytime you listen to the radio, you listen to music, anytime you're talking with your friends, you're sitting in class, you're going to the office, do you realize that you're being discipled? Do you realize that you're being taught what to think? You're being taught how to think? You're being taught what is important? You're being taught what is relevant? What is stylish? You're being taught what should be funny? What should be sacrosanct? But how are you being taught what's right? How are you going to know what's right? More than that, how are you going to know what's righteous if you don't have as a firm foundation at least a, a, a basic level functional understanding of what the Word of God says for yourself? Without a sound understanding of your Bible, you're going to be like, like Paul describes in Ephesians 4. You're going to be like a boat on the ocean without an anchor tossed about by every wind of doctrine, whatever sounds right, whatever sounds good, whatever makes my heart feel good. Do you know what the Bible says about your heart? Did you know that the Bible says repeatedly that your heart is so broken that it can't even adequately decide what's good for itself? That its natural inclination is to go for what makes you feel comfortable, but that's not always going to be what's right. The Bible says flat out that there are going to be moments where you're going to have to go in the direction that you're not going to like for the sake of your heart that is broken. You have to know your Bible. Zephaniah's audience had no appreciation for the word of God, and their lives showed it. This is a major contributing factor to the tone of God's message brought through Zephaniah. The book begins with this bleak proclamation. He introduces himself and gets right to work. So verses 2 through 6 again, if you could put them up there for me, David. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away birds of the heavens and fish of the seas and the rubble and the wicked. So he's, when he says rubble, he's talking about the idols that infest Judah. I'm going to take away the idols and those who worship them. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the rooftops of the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear to Milcom, those who have turned their back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Through this prophetic book, God will eventually call people to repentance in chapter 2. 
And he will eventually offer hope in chapter 3, but he begins with a striking declaration that he's going to destroy everything. No one is going to escape judgment. In case it is unclear, God clarifies what everything means by saying man and beast, birds and fish. Here's the deal. Judah was part of a covenant with God wherein they were to be uh, his people and they were going to be, or he was going to be, their God. More than that, they were established sort of as, the, as not only his representatives in creation, which is what all of humanity is supposed to be, right? We're all made in his image, whether you believe in God or not. Um, but, but they were appointed as sort of like this intermediary between um, God and all of creation. That meant that Judah was responsible for being distinct from their neighbors. And by doing so, not only were they going to receive blessing, but the entirety of creation would receive a blessing because of their faithfulness to their covenant. So let's look at the covenant that God establishes with his people, starting in Genesis. It's in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, or to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house, leave everything you know, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here's, what's God, here's what God's asking his people to do. Number one, follow him. Leave what is familiar. Leave what is comfortable. And follow me on a journey that I'm not going to show you how this ends. I'm going to give you something, a land that I will show you. I want you to trust me, and I want you to follow me. Number two, be my representatives among the people of this creation. Notice that the blessings and curses are predicated on what? How people interact with his people. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you or curse those who dishonor you. So this entire thing is predicated upon how nations interact with Abraham's descendants. Number three, God wants his people to bless all the families of the earth. Quite literally, God will use the line of Abraham to produce a way for everyone on the planet to receive salvation. God reminds his people of this covenant time and again, and he sometimes reveals a little bit more here and there about exactly what's going to happen, exactly what line this Savior is going to come from, exactly what is to be expected in the future. Roughly 1,400 years after God establishes his covenant with Abraham, this is how God spoke to Judah through Jeremiah around the same time as Zephaniah. Um, So Jeremiah 11 He says, And the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear. But everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they did not. Again, the Lord said to me, a conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers and refused to hear my words. 
They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Remember Habakkuk pleading with God. We went through that last summer and he says, why are you doing this? This needs to stop. And God just says, it's going to happen. But here's why it's going to happen. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they make offerings, but they cannot save them in their time of trouble. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to shame, altars to make offerings to Baal. So Judah was to be God's people, and he was to be their God. He was their protector and their patron. He was their refuge. He was their treasure. But the men of Judah conspired together and abandoned their covenant with God. Instead of remaining distinct, they immersed themselves uh, themselves in the idolatry of the cultures around them. Rather than being distinct, they became like everything else around them. God had been patient. Remember, this was 1400 hundred years after the covenant where he finally says that's it there is a judgment coming that you cannot escape i have called you back i have chased after you and yet you flee from me to go to these gods so let them help you in your time of trouble they won't and then you'll come back to me is the implied thing there right He has called after them for 1,400 years, even as they fled for them. He sent nine, nine prophets with the same message over and over and over, and they ignored them. But it's fallen on deaf ears. So now Judah's littered with these altars dedicated to Baal, and God addresses these faithless people in the proclamation of judgment, verses 4, 5, and 6. I'll stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, etc., etc., the idolatry isn't just on an individual level. Did you get that? Like he's not, he's not talking about individuals who are doing this. He's talking to the nation who has as many altars to other gods as streets in Jerusalem. You couldn't walk down the street, turn a corner, and not see another chance to offer a sacrifice of some kind to a god who wasn't Yahweh. It was an institutional failure of God's people. Even the temple we read in, uh, in 2 Kings um, after Hezekiah, After this godly king, the temple of God, the physical representation of God's holiness, of his glory, of his justice, and of his mercy was converted from a place to worship God to a place where people went and sacrificed their children in fire on an altar, burned their children alive. And God looks at that and says, I never asked you for this. What are you doing? He calls out the remnant of Baal, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Baal, right? Baal was this common name for the god Hadad. He was a Canaanite god who in their pantheon was also the king of the gods. They had sacrificed relationship with the true king of kings, god of gods, for a pale imitation a wooden representation of of falsehood. 
The host of heavens refers to idols from Assyria and Canaan. Milcom is a pagan god of the Ammonites. These gods that they worship are from every other country around their borders. This is all a direct violation of the first of the Ten Commandments, right? Say it with me. You shall have no other gods before me. You guys did terrible on that. <laughs> I didn't give you time. This would be fair. Um, I just expected that to be like our moment where we clicked and just, well, it's fine. It's whatever. Um, this was the primary way that, that God's people was to remain distinct was that their pantheon of gods was one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was the refrain. That was what they were supposed to repeat every morning, every meal, every night. That was what you drilled into their heads, and they had lost it. And with that, their distinction. But here's the thing. The problem with maintaining distinction, the problem with having distinction or a lack thereof, isn't an academic or abstract problem. We're not just looking at this in an Old Testament book that was written, what, almost 3,000 years ago, and saying, well, that might have been relevant for Judah, but so much time has passed and so many things have been learned since then, and, and God wouldn't possibly want us to, to keep worrying about remaining distinct when we, we live in a pluralistic society and we want everything to be, I'm okay, you're okay. That, that can't possibly still be the, the point, and yet it is. The struggle to remain distinct as followers of God is every bit a problem in our lives as it was in the lives of the people of Judah. The natural tendency of our hearts does not incline us towards obedience. It inclines us to uh, diverse affections, to be kind, divided allegiances. We see this played out for us time and again in the Old Testament where people chart their own path apart from God and it leads to destruction. You are, you are doing yourself a disservice if you read the Old Testament like a collection of stories about people who were not actually people. Like, remember, the nation of Israel was only special because God had said, you are going to be my people. I am, I am choosing you to be my people, right? Apart from that, they were human beings. Apart from that, they struggled with the same things we struggle, more or less, right? There, there's this, this, this conflicting uh, desire in our hearts where we, we, those of us who claim to be believers, like, we want to follow God, and yet how many times do we sit back and go, why did I do that? Why did I say that? How long has it been since, like, some people, like I, I hear people testimony all the time where they're like, you know what, I just, I stopped going to church for years and then finally somebody woke me up. Here I am again. Right, maybe that's part of your story and you can relate. The reality is, no matter how much we might want to be obedient, there's always going to be worldly influences that actively seek to draw us away from obedience. Do you get that? Um, the, you're, you're constantly, again, you're constantly being discipled by culture. Culture wants you to be a certain way. Companies are now, like, some, some, like, very influential companies are now beginning to establish, like, cultural, ethical, moral guidelines for their employees, and they're being very, very keen to see those maintained, right? So now, now we're getting to a point where, like, your employment might depend on this kind of thing. So that was an article I read yesterday, so it's, like, right there. Um, like the priests of Judah who, who swear to God and to Milcom, we want to blend our obedience with God to other things. 
our obedience to God with other things. In a sense, right, God's people have always struggled with something called syncretism. Syncretism is this notion that um, as it relates to culture or religion or um, like language, right, it, it applies to a lot of areas, where you take two distinct things and you put them together, and now what do you have? You don't have two things. Did I say you know have two things? You don't have two things. You have one new thing, right? Um, sometimes syncretism can be a great thing, right? Like how many of you have been to BJ's? BJ's Brewhouse, right? Okay, so they have engaged in syncretism where they've taken a pizza and a cookie and put them together. And then they put ice cream and whipped cream on it. I saw some of your eyes light up like you've never had this before. Go there after lunch today, right? Um, it's called a pizookie. It's beautiful. It's a great example of how two things can come together and create a new beautiful thing, right? Sometimes syncretism can be bad. Like if you take a normal pizza and you add pineapple, you have ruined, <laughs> you have ruined a formally, thank you. But you couldn't get, there shall be no other gods, it's fine. You've ruined a good thing, right? You've taken two things that are independently good, unless you're Kevin and pineapple will kill you, um, and you've put them together, now you've ruined a good thing. Nobody wants to eat that pizza. If you do, I'm sorry. Like, I, like God loves you, I love you, you're wrong. Um, and my wife, by the way, likes that kind of thing, although she has grown a lot in the last 11 years. <laughs> If we're not careful, those of us who would call ourselves Christians can engage in a modern-day religious syncretism that is, that is so subtle. It's so subversive. You don't even realize you're doing it, right? Like, you could, you could be, like, sold out for Jesus, and you could really— and don't get me wrong, right? I'm not saying that you can do this and then not love Jesus. I'm saying that, like, you can genuinely love the Lord and fall into this trap. That's what makes it so subversive. You can, like, I'm sure we've heard this one before in our community groups when we're talking about things we're struggling with. You can really love serving Jesus and then make ministry an idol. You can really love your children and make your children an idol. Where they're competing for, like, it's, it's not like I'm going to go worship here on Sunday and then I'm going to go sacrifice a goat in the woods. Like, that's not what it looks like all the time. I hope it never looks like that. But, like, you get the point. Like, it's not always that obvious. God wants us to be distinct. If you have ever opened up your scripture and looked at a message given to God's people, that is the underlying theme, isn't it? Like, I want you to stop doing this. Don't, like, you've heard it said, you can do this, or I know that there are temples around you that do this sort of thing, but that is not what you do right? That's in Paul's letters. That's in the gospels over and over and over again. Jesus says, like, we're to be light, Light goes into darkness and chases it away. If you try to mix darkness and light, you get one or the other. And the only way to mix darkness with light effectively is to dim the light. Is that what you have been called to do as Christians? Absolutely not. Like, what was that nursery rhyme? Not nursery rhyme, but like the VBS song, like, oh, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Like, we got that. We know that. You know that. You don't know that. I'm, I'm over it now. One or the other prevails. Either you will serve God or you will serve other things. Either you will be distinct or you will not. There is no middle of the road on this. As we study through Zephaniah together, I want you to ask yourself, 
in what ways you struggle to remain distinct from the world around you. What is it in your life that is competing against God for your affections? Right? For me, this is an easy one. Like, at least there's one easy one that I can say, like, obviously this is it, right? For me, a big one is pride. Um, I, I, could, I could theorize why. I could speculate why this is. But um, I, I nurse this thing called uh, imposter syndrome, where I'm just certain that any moment now, somebody's going to break through that door and be like, faking it! Right? Um, and, and, and in, so in my fragile ego, what I, what I want when I'm interacting with someone is I want them to like me. I want them to think that I'm smart. I want them to think that I am capable and competent. I want them to think that I'm somebody they'd want to hang around with. I want to, what I really want, right? So my pride works itself out in a desire to be accepted. I want to be accepted. But this desire to be accepted by other people robs me of the joy that God offers me through Christ, right? God has said, Derek, you are accepted because of what Christ has done for you. You don't have to go out and seek approval and be subject to all of these desires and try to be something that you're not. Like, I love you. I have accepted you. And because I've accepted you, now I want you to interact with other people for my glory, for my kingdom. But because I so desperately want still to be accepted by others, that works itself out in introversion. And for a lot of us who claim to be introverted, this is what's going on. It's not that you have a small social plate. It's that you are so scared of someone else. And I can say it in these terms because I'm one of you, right? So don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not talking out. I'm talking with you. I, I level here. I level. Um, you don't want to be known by people because if they know you, they might not like you. You don't want to be known by people because if you interact with people, then you have to give up some level of comfort. If you, don't, if you interact with people, then you don't get to do what you want to do. And, and, and maybe, maybe this idea of yourself will begin to break down a little bit because you're being challenged by the reality, right? Like, I think I'm a really great, easy communicator. I think I'm a funny guy. But then I start talking to somebody, and I say something stupid, and I'm like, oh, God, they don't, they don't think I'm funny. I, don't, I shouldn't have said that. And Caitlin always tells me I shouldn't say the jokes that I say. Um, but, but it's a problem, right? Um, I know firsthand what God means when he tells Cain, you better watch out because sin is crouching at the door. This, this is like the whisper that's always going on in my head. They're not going to like you. You're not going to say that right. You're not going to make that point clearly. They're not going to want to come back because you're not preaching effectively. Right? They're, they're not going to get your point. Um, that's, that's not genuine concern. That's not godly concern. That's, that's my pride saying, you might screw up. Give in to me. Let me help you fix this. That's sin crouching at the door. I've been a Christian for nearly 20 years now, and by God's grace, most of them, I think at this point, have been fruitful, maturing years. I'm not, I'm not trying to quantify that. I'm just saying, like, I think more than, more than not, the last 20 years, I've, I've now been growing for maybe 10 or 11 of those to a, to a certain point. By God's grace, I have gotten more and more aware of this defect. I've gotten more and more aware of my pridefulness and been able to sort of chip back that hardness. I've been able to pull back that curtain and, and, and be more of a light where I otherwise wouldn't be. But it's been painful at times. It's been very painful at times. I've gotten it wrong. I've put my foot in my mouth. I have been embarrassed. I have, um, well, been me. And, and, and yet, God is patient with me 
But this is what it should be like, right? When you're struggling against sin, when you're struggling to remain distinct, it should be painful sometimes. It should be difficult. There should be moments where you're asking yourself, like, am I doing this right? But that's what we're called to be in part of a community, a community of believers who love Jesus and study his word so that you can get good, God-honoring, edifying feedback from those who know you best because you will be known, right? That's what we expect of, of the local church because that's what God expects of us. There's this um, awesome story um, that I like so much, I'm trying to like squeeze it in. It might be a slightly square peg going in a round hole, but bear with me. Um, there's this awesome part of Scripture, keeping in mind this idea of being distinct and having our allegiances to God. In Joshua, Joshua 5, where Joshua and his army is getting ready to go to battle against Jericho. This is like the, the thing standing in the way of their taking over the promised land. So these Jericho, uh, Israel's army is all back here this way. Joshua, brave, courageous leader, maybe a little stupid, I don't really know, decides he's going to go and scout around Jericho by himself. And as he's doing it, the Bible says, it doesn't say exactly what, Jericho, uh, what Joshua is doing, but it says, as if he was suddenly aware, he raised his eyes and saw a soldier standing there with uh, a sword in his hand. And this person must have been um, pretty imposing. It doesn't tell us what he looked like other than a soldier with a sword in his hand, but what it tells us is Joshua looked at that person and rather than striking him, right, because he's, he's on a top secret mission, doesn't need to be seen, that's probably not good for his future. He sees this soldier and he doesn't attack him. He doesn't try to silence him so he can't alert Jericho. All he says, as if all he can do is try to talk his way out of this, he says, are you for Israel or are you for our enemies? And I love the response that he gets. The man says, no. Are you this or are you that? No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. This encounter is one of several. If you've not heard this idea, like this is going to change the way you read the Old Testament if you're anything like me. Um, this is one of several encounters in the Old Testament where um, this is not just an angel. This is not like Gabriel or Michael popping up, having a message, whatever. This is Jesus before the New Testament. And what he says to Joshua, in effect, is you're asking the wrong question. This is not about whose side I'm on. It's about whose side you're on, and you right now are on holy ground. Give me your allegiance. Make no mistake, you cannot have it both ways. You cannot grow in your relationship with God as you cling to a relationship with an idol, whatever it might be. God says in Revelation that he's going to spit out what is lukewarm. Right? We must retain our distinction. Think about your testimony for a moment. Think about this. Think back on how you came to saving faith in the Lord. Raise your hand if it had anything to do with a relationship you had with someone who loved Jesus that was just different. They were hospitable to you in ways that, that really confused you. Um, you were at a party and they weren't drunk. They were taking care of everybody else who was. They paid for your meal. They did something nice. Raise your hand if that was true of you, right? 
It definitely had an impact on, on my faith growing, I'll tell you that, right? Most of the room raised their hand. That's the kind of impact we're supposed to have on a fallen world. That's the way we maintain our distinction. That's the impact we have when we maintain our distinction and engage the world around us as faithful believers. But I think some of us might be saying, like, that's all well and good, but why is God's pronouncement of judgment so harsh? Like, if there is hope, why, why is this so harsh? That's a fair question, so let's talk about that since I told you we would anyway. Um, God has literally saved his people from slavery. We're going to put this in perspective. He's literally saved them from slavery, provided them a home that they didn't cultivate, homes they didn't build, given them wealth they didn't earn, given them battles they didn't fight. You know how they took Jericho? They didn't fight. They walked around and yelled a bit. And the walls were like, we give up, and they fell. Right? Like, they didn't, they literally, like, they didn't earn it. God gave it to them. So we can't say God hasn't been faithful. God's been warning them of judgment for 1,400 years at this point. 1,400 years. We can't say God hasn't been patient. Like any good father, God doesn't make idle threats, so the time has come to follow through. But the punishment God promises, really, like he's talking about judgment on Judah, um, you need to understand the, the punishment that really is at play for failure to break the covenant is not exile. Right? That, like that's the immediate consequence that they're going to face. But the ultimate punishment for breaking a covenant is an end of the covenant, which means an end of the relationship. And yet God shows Judah mercy because even though he, he kicks them out of the land, he maintains his relationship. He takes on the burden of restoring that relationship. God uses the conquering of Israel and Judah to restore the faith of his people. If you go and look at the history of the Old Testament, this is what happens. They get kicked out, they get their punishment, and somehow, through it all, their faith is restored, even though the stuff God had given them was taken away. Restoration came through judgment. This was true for God's people during Zephaniah's time, and it's more true for us on this side of the cross, right? Because for us, our restoration has made possible because of the punishment, the judgment that was placed on Christ, who sat on our behalf as our representative, taking the punishment for us. The ultimate punishment for breaking the covenant was not paid by Judah, and it will not be paid by us. In reality, that's the main message of, of Zephaniah. Like, yes, you're broken and sinful and worthy of judgment, but God will provide salvation. The message of Zephaniah is really no different than the gospel message. You're broken and sinful more than you know. Your life is marked by disobedience and God will hold you accountable. But God, being rich in mercy, <clears throat> in mercy will also provide salvation to those who heed his call to repent and believe. Though Zephaniah didn't see it yet, this message of hope points beyond an end to the oppression of God's people by foreign kingdoms. It points beyond an end to the exile, and it points to an end of oppression wrought by sin and death. That's the hope we have. 
Right now, every one of us is in exile, whether you're a Christian or not. We're, we're living in a world that, as Paul says in Romans 8, is groaning as it waits for restoration. We are here because of sin in this situation. We're here because of sin. But sin isn't just an act of disobedience. It's a state of existence. It's the new normal ever since Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world and were exiled from God's presence. Everything we long for, everything we do to try and satiate our souls, all of the little idols that are competing for our affection, we chase after them. What we're really chasing after when we chase after them is the restoration, the the sense of completeness and fullness, the sense of joy that only comes from a right relationship with your creator. Every distraction that pops up and pulls off a little bit of your affection is just an imitation of the completeness you can get from a relationship with God. The answer of how we get there isn't anything we can do. The answer is God's grace and mercy. We, we get just a small taste of that, even from verse 1 in Zephaniah. The prophet's name Zephaniah means the Lord protects. A reminder that God is still the shield for those who are faithful. God will protect his faithful. This is powerful. The God who created the universe, the God who can cause kingdoms to rise and fall, the God who can bring judgment against the entire earth and all of its inhabitants holds on to his children. What an incredible promise! just a moment, we're going to take communion. This is a a physical reminder for us of the work of Jesus on the cross. The, The bread represents his body, which was broken for us. The juice represents the blood of Jesus, which was poured out in order to pay the penalty for our sins, so that we could not be the one who was broken. As we enter into worship with God through this, um, let's take time to meditate on the hope that God offers us. God is our defender, God is our refuge, and God is our hope. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for, um, for your word. I thank you that, that it displays your faithfulness, that it, it calls us to account, that it demands us to repent, it calls us to obedience. And I thank you that it shows us your faithfulness to us, that we might have hope that you will accomplish this work you've started, that you will not only provide instant justification, but an an eventual restoration to all things, that sin will be eradicated. And thank you, God, for your mercy in, in saving us who believe from that fate, from that punishment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.